0: Welcome everyone to this latest edition of Asia Watch Beyond the Headlines. My name is Jeff Reeves. I'm the Vice President for Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. We are very lucky today to have with us a distinguished fellow to the foundation, as well as a policy analyst, commentator, and author whose latest work, Learning from Tomorrow Using Strategic Foresight to Prepare for the Next Big Disruption, is going to be the main focus of our discussion today, uh, Bart Eddies. Bart, most recently been with the Asian Development Bank, where he worked from two thousand and one to two thousand and twenty as the North American representative. So we're able to hear from his perspective at working with the Asian Development Bank, but also with some of his thought with broader strategic foresight as his his focus. So Bart, welcome, and uh, we look forward to a good discussion of some of the main issues that we we can we can touch on.
1: Hi, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: So I wonder, uh, I've read your book, it was fascinating, and I think a a lot of meat here that we can talk about. Maybe I think that the best way to start is, I wonder if you could provide a little context of why you wrote the book, uh, what you hoped would add to the existing literature right now that's out there on strategic foresight, and, and basically just what kind of gaps you were trying to fill. And then maybe after that, we can talk a little bit about what exactly strategic foresight is.
1: Well. I started writing this book in June, a few months into the pandemic. And as you say, it's on the the topic of strategic foresight. Maybe it is useful just to give a a flavor of what that is and we can dig a little deeper uh, later in our discussion. In short, strategic foresight is a structured and systematic way of, of using ideas about the future to anticipate and better prepare for change. It's also about exploring alternative futures and the opportunities and challenges they may present. So back in June of 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, where the uncertainty and volatility in our lives that already exists was exacerbated by this global crisis, I got to thinking, you know, there are ways that governments, organizations in the private sector and nonprofit sector can better prepare for big disruptions like this, as well as any other changes that will be evolving over time, uh, that may not be quite so so tragic, if you will. Strategic foresight's been around for a while, but despite that, a lot of people don't know much about it. They may have preconceptions. They don't know quite um, how, how to use it, how relevant it might be. So I put myself to the effort of, of putting together basically a primer inspired by this pandemic to help organizations prepare for what may come next. Looking down the line, as strategic foresight does 10, 15 or more years into the future.
0: So I wonder if we can unpack that a little bit. When when you say that industries and companies and and even policymakers can benefit from strategic foresight or exercising strategic foresight or engaging in that that type of analysis, looking beyond the current timeline, 5, 10, 15 years, how exactly do they do that? How do institutions use strategic foresight in order to better prepare themselves for an uncertain future?
1: Well, there are different ways of applying strategic foresight. A a typical path that a strategic foresight uh, initiative or exercise uh, might be carried out would be start by looking at an an issue or a question. And that might be in the case of of Canada, uh, what will Canada's energy supply uh, look like in the year 2040? Or given the work of the foundation, how might uh, Canada's relations, economic, political, etc., cetera, with Southeast Asia involve uh, over the next 15 years? These are examples. You start with an issue, a question, and then you begin to look at the assumptions behind that, the assumptions that underlie your, your policy uh, and discussion and dialogue around that issue. Oftentimes, we, we are proceeding in, uh, in whatever organization we're in, with a certain set of assumptions, uh, with with policies and rules that have been put into place and we don't often revisit, are those assumptions still valid? So you look at the assumptions uh, of of prevailing policy and thought. Moving forward in in an exercise, you do a horizon scan and this is basically where you're looking for weak signals. Uh, Weak signals are early indications of what might be a wild card, which is a low probability, high impact event or a weak signal could also point to an emerging trend, something that becomes a prevailing tendency or direction. And we can talk about weak signals later and how you spot them. From there, you move into mapping the system. And this is one of the typical features of of strategic foresight, is is looking how different elements interact, how different uh, drivers of change influence one another. The whole process is distinguished from straight line forecasting because that tends to look at the past and draws a line into the future based on that. Whereas with foresight drawing on different disciplines, you're looking at how different drivers of change may interact. And finally, these drivers of change within a system lead you to develop typically three or four different plausible alternative futures on where things might go with Mm -hmm. regard to your question in the next 10, 15 or more years. And the value of that is with those insights developed over days or weeks or longer, that will better inform your policy making today. It'll help you future-proof them to incorporate the possibility that things could go this way or go that way based on these alternative scenarios that have been developed after a careful analysis of, of trends and drivers of change and and what may uh, give rise to those
0: so how pervasive would you say the use of f- foresight is in for example fortune 500 companies and if it's if it's not pervasive or if it is pervasive what are some of the challenges to implementing good foresight uh, at the institutional level uh, what what sort of resources would a, a firm need for example to be able to do this work in a way that would result in an, an outcome that would actually have kind of a create scenarios around which they could do contingency planning or, or could think about their future resourcing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what, what kind of obstacles are in way of, of doing this kind of foresight exercise?
1: It may not be surprising that uh, during this crisis, interest in strategic foresight has really grown because we have these underlying disruptive trends, whether it be aging or climate change, automation affecting the labor market. Uh, scientific and technological advances. And then you throw on top of this, a pandemic that, you know, at times shut down uh, economies and stop traffic and uh, transport and, and movement ab- between countries. And so in this time of uh, accentuated uncertainty and volatility, uh, a number of organizations, as they're looking at their, their plans for 2020 and 2021, that they had to tear up As they're preparing new ones, they're thinking, well, what what might happen next? We just got hit by this pandemic. How can we better prepare? So in short, there's been a lot more interest in the topic. Those who specialize in foresight, who offer consulting services, are seeing more demand. You see more companies hiring staff specifically to look at possible futures, sometimes with the title of strategic foresight in their position. You see interest in university programs that teach foresight, so for example, at the Ontario College of Art and Design University, you've got a Master of Design and Strategic Foresight that's been in place for a few years, uh, but they have good demand for that course. You see Future City Canada, which is a platform for looking at the future of of urban areas in Canada, getting more attention and, and undertaking studies at what kind of infrastructure investment might be needed in the future. At the same time, it's starting from a bit of a low base. So there's, you ask about the Fortune 500, only about 25% of Fortune 500 companies have designated in-house capacity on strategic foresight. But we do see that ticking up, inspired by uh, what we've just experienced uh, in this pandemic. So what does a company need? Well, one of the beauties about strategic foresight is that it's it's very adaptable and you can accomplish quite a bit with just a minimal investment. Obviously... A bigger company with more resources might want to spend more time uh, on the issue, might want to invest uh, in greater capacity, but even smaller organizations can do things uh, with foresight that can be very useful. And I'll give you an example. With uh, horizon scanning, which I mentioned earlier, looking for these uh, early indications of change, uh, just a regular scanning of the environment, uh, social media, of press review, of uh, what you're hearing in your circles, in your business community, in your sector, Uh, What others are talking about? Are there there emerging possible changes that uh, could have a lasting impact and staying power? And so doing horizon scanning can alert you and your organization at an early stage that this might lead to something um, that could affect your business environment and your opportunities in the future. So uh, horizon scanning is a relatively easy thing to put into place in, in most organizations. Now for more involved, detailed studies, You have to call upon external uh, supports in the way of facilitators and foresight specialists if you don't have them on staff. A good foresight uh, study is participatory and involves uh, staff of the organization and outside of the organization and tapping expertise in different areas depending on the subject covered. So just to give you a flavor, it can be a rather simple process of adding uh, to the tasks regularly carried out by an organization, uh, horizon scanning, or can be more involved where you really want to look at where's the sector I'm involved in going to be in 10, 15 years.
0: Do we have any indication how accurate this foresight, strategic foresight can be? Uh, Do we have, for example, any kind of quality control measures or studies in the past that have tried to, to hold a a standard against some of the predictions made through foresight to what actually has occurred? And, and do we see, you know, a kind of a corollary discussion or question to that is do we see areas where foresight can actually influence the industry in which it's taking place and actually shape some of the trends that it seeks to identify through kind of that scanning the horizon activity?
1: I would draw a contrast at the outset between strategic foresight and forecasting, they're sometimes confused and there's certainly a relationship and they can cooperate together, if you will. But forecasting is basically predictions based on past or current data relying on trends analysis. And so you had forecasting in 2018, in 2019, looking ahead to 2020 and all of that forecasting done around business models and such uh, had to be thrown away four months into 2020. In contrast, strategic foresight studies done, say, 10, 15 years ago, anticipated among the different scenarios. So there was not a single prediction. That's something to note. Foresight does not predict one singular future, okay? It presents a scenario, draws a picture, provides a narrative of possibilities, not all of which will come true. But there were scenarios that, uh, for example, done by the Rockefeller Foundation in 2010 that envisioned a global pandemic that killed millions of people. That led to government government restrictions, surveillance, um, uh, curtailment of travel. So foresight will give you possibilities of both risks and opportunities, but it, it's not necessarily precise. Which gets at one of the points you uh, questions you had earlier. What uh, what are the obstacles to uh, adopting it? And it's a long list, unfortunately. Part of it is. We operate in an environment, whether it's in the nonprofit think tank sector, it's in, in, in companies or government. We're under a lot of short-term pressures. We're we're geared with the incentive structures of of our employment and our clients to to respond to the here and now, and not too far down the line. And so, when you start talking about what might happen in 10, 15 years, the people you're talking to may be retired or moved to another organization. So this. It's hard to get mobilized. And if you move into the the government sector and you're dealing with politicians who face an election every five years or so, they too can only get so interested in something that's longer term that will not give them some element of precision. So uh, on the one hand, there is great value added in in knowing what are, again, plausible, not definite, but plausible futures and a handful of them, not not dozens. There's great value in that in in making your policies for today. But you're not going to have the kind of, I'd say, false precision that a forecast for next year might provide you, uh, relying on on past data, uh, rather than looking at, for example, how emerging trends might interact to uh, to yield results uh, that aren't necessarily evident at the outset of a foresight study.
0: I wonder if you can uh, point us to any uh, foresight studies that have tried to determine what the the near to medium term will look like around COVID uh, recovery and and response. And in particular, because we're the Asia-Pacific Foundation, I wonder if you could make any broad kind of assumptions or point to forecast studies that have looked at the Asia-Pacific region with respect to what we can expect in in broader terms or broad terms in the next five to 10 years post-pandemic.
1: I'd start with an example here in Canada, one of the leading government teams working on foresight is Policy Horizons, and this is, this is a part of the Canadian government, technically reports to the Minister of uh, Employment, but basically serves all of the public administration with capacity building on how to use foresight tools and provides advice to, to different ministries and such on, on how to carry out studies. And some of their work is public. So some of it is, of course, for internal planning of the the government and touching upon maybe sensitive or strategic themes, but they do publish periodic reports and they've published a couple lately, one on digital technologies and another on possible changes that COVID-19 will bring not only for Canada, but for the world. And those are available on the policy horizons website and have been posted in the last two months, and I would encourage readers interested in the the topic um, in these topics to check it out now turning to Asia Asia is becoming a hotbed of, of foresight and futures, so I draw a little distinction futures. And future studies is kind of a a broader category of looking ahead to possible changes in the next 10 to 15 years. Foresight is more the practical application for strategic reasons using uh, specific methodologies and tools. You have, for example, the Asia Pacific Futures Network set up five years ago, bringing together foresight experts and and futurists in different countries to, to share experience and promote the use of foresight. There are other groups that do this as well. Coming back to studies about Asia, I would look at the Asia Pacific Foresight Group and they are, uh, they are housed or supported by the Australian Science Agency. And so this Foresight Group brings together specialists from around Asia, as well as Australia, and they are uh, doing scenario planning for Asia for the decades ahead. So that's an interesting place um, to, to find some, some insights about what's coming. And the one other example I'll provide is another leading government center for foresight studies and that's the center for strategic futures. This is in the prime minister's office of Singapore and Singapore uh, is one of the countries in the world that has been using foresight and scenarios planning for a very long time. And they have a, a cadre of experts who've been working in this space who jumped into action when the pandemic hit. And as I've indicated, uh, foresight tends to have a longer time range but because people were grappling for how do we get out of this and how long will we be in this they they brought uh, they brought out quick studies that looked in the shorter term uh, what might happen in the next handful of years rather than uh, say in 2030 so people will have a sense of what to anticipate and, and have a little more comfort in an era of uh, great uncertainty and and uh, economic and health crisis the center for strategic futures they have published, uh, some material uh, in blogs and, and, and the like uh, that give an idea of some of the trends that they see emerging. What I see, based on uh, my, my own um, examination of, of, of trends that have developed in the last year uh, and what other foresight specialists and futurists are, are witnessing, things that we're probably going to see stick around for at least several years include things like lower birth rates, digital IDs surveillance and monitoring by government and by companies, possibly face masks in flu season. So whether or not COVID is an issue next flu season, people will be more accustomed to wearing face masks depending on the jurisdiction one is in. Automation, obviously. Automation was a trend that had begun before the pandemic that has only accelerated. That connected to, to robots and artificial intelligence, the impact on the labor market, it's coming faster than a lot of people anticipate we're gonna see a reimagined workspace. It's not going to be like it was uh, in February of 2020. So yes, people will return to the office, but what will that office look like? Uh, they're gonna start designing it differently, at least for the short term for safety and health reasons, but also because a lot of people don't wanna to go to the office five days a week and companies are finding there's some advantages to that in terms of their bottom line and productivity. So there will be hybrid work arrangements. For, for those in Canada, we can expect that uh, the prices of, of of rentals and property purchases for the cottage on the lake, uh, those prices have been rising as people look for a connection to nature and to get out into the open and and away from where the spread of COVID is taking place. And I think for the next few years, we're gonna see uh, rental costs and, and housing prices in rural and, and, and pretty places in, in the country. Those will remain elevated. Uh, just another thing or two, uh, local sourcing. We've seen a a trend toward that when we couldn't go far from home. Uh, We've had a chance also to reflect on the way we lead our lives and our connection to nature and the whole idea of farm to table and and, and growing locally in the backyard. Gardening got a huge boost uh, in the pandemic. And so we can see a bit more of of local uh, sourcing take place. And one one just uh, last uh, observation I'd make, and that this is gonna cause people uh, some pause, is it will not be so unusual Uh, as we go into the future to have online friends that you never meet. So we always assumed in the pre-pandemic that, okay, we're talking by Zoom or what have you, but at some point we'll connect. Uh, We've become so accustomed to using uh, virtual means of communication that not everybody we talk to online, we're actually going to meet face-to-face.
0: That's fascinating. Those are all fascinating trends and give, I think, anybody a a lot to to think about. I wonder if I could press you a little bit more, though, on you you identified some of the big picture economic trends in Asia, economic socioeconomic development trends in Asia, some of the the parallel developments in Canada. But I wonder if foresight can actually help Canadian policymakers, help Canadian business people, the, the Canadian people, society, think about how to more effectively engage within the Asia Pacific and whether or not that tool can become a a part of planning and and outreach to to help increase Canada's position within the region, whether that's politically, whether that's commercially, or whether that's pushing forward people-to-people exchanges?
1: I think it has to be. I do know that the Canadian government is using uh, foresight in its diplomatic organs Uh, in in the way it approaches security and intelligence work, but it can only benefit by using it more. A lot of our thinking uh, in the discourse about engagement with Asia, take China as an example, tends to be focused on very real current tensions and problems in the relationship. Stepping back and taking a broader view and looking at trends, putting aside certain assumptions or clarifying if our assumptions are true about the relationships that we have Canada and Canadians with with Asia and and China in this example, examining those assumptions and then looking at trends, not only in Canada and China and between the two, but other countries in the world more globally can perhaps open up some perspectives that we haven't really reflected on. An example might be the role of Southeast Asia. So ASEAN, uh, bringing together 10 countries in Southeast Asia, having some challenges right now uh, governance challenges and conflict in, in Myanmar, but at the same time, this is a part of, of the world that is, once it's through COVID, it's going to pick up the uh, fast economic growth rate that it had before the crisis. So if Canada is, for example, looking ahead um, and looking at Asia as an important uh, diplomatic and economic partner, if we're focused solely on China as, as, the, as, as the big economy there, we may be missing opportunities emerging in Southeast Asia, which within the next decade will be something like the fourth largest economy in the world, taking all of those countries, including Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Philippines, and others, uh, together. So, yes, using foresight, it will get get us beyond the tendency to look very short term. We want this problem solved, this tariff, uh, this diplomatic uh, dispute, to. Where, where are the trends interacting? And, and in that context, looking at Asia, I'd cite one more for consideration, and that's demography. We know that uh, Canada is an aging country, as is Western, you know, many Western European countries in the US. What is less well-known is aging is becoming a huge challenge uh, in, in Asia. And so Japan, Korea, and Singapore as examples, high-income countries are already experiencing high rates of, uh, of, of aging, the, the silver tsunami, right? And China, too, is, is aging uh, faster than other parts of, of Asia, like India. Uh, in fact, it's becoming older before it becomes rich. Yeah, of course, uh, China's the economy has been booming, uh, aside from the, the pandemic uh, disruption. But that growth is expected to taper off, and the labor market will be shrinking. And so the assumptions we may hold about China, for example, have to be put in In the perspective of longer term trends, and I cite demographic trends, there are going to be some gigantic challenges. And very soon in China, related to the size of the workforce, there are other complementary issues, including an imbalance between uh, the number of men and women, uh, as well as the impact of the one child policy. All of this is going to affect China's productivity, how it views other countries, um, its anxiousness. I don't mean to focus solely on that issue, but just to cite an example of something that is an emerging trend that will interact with others, government needs to to explore these further using, in addition to other tools, strategic foresight.
0: So I I want to wrap up our discussion maybe with a, a way forward for people that are interested either in implementing strategic foresight within their own operations, or perhaps maybe learning more about it for their own personal intellectual curiosity or, or learning more about how they can pursue a greater understanding of this this kind of skill set in order to apply it within their, their current position. So do you have any uh, advice for organizations that are looking to stand up their own internal strategic foresight mechanisms or capabilities? And then in parallel to that, do you have any recommendations of online or, or uh, available public resources that people can visit to learn more about the, the methodologies and the approaches that are inherent within a strategic foresight model.
1: Jeff, I have to thank you because that's a, that's a nice segue back to the book, which we've been talking about again, the title, uh, learning from tomorrow using strategic foresight to prepare for the next big disruption. Um, and in my book, one of the features is, uh, recommendations on what organizations, again, in the, whether it's the public, private or nonprofit sectors can do. and that includes identifying resources uh, that could be dedicated to strategic foresight, challenging one's own assumptions, revisiting what you think you know. Start the horizon scanning, which is one of the low cost and easy things to do, but do it systematically. Skill up. Uh, there are a variety of certification programs. there are webinars, there are university degrees available to those who want to gain a more foresight experience, uh, begin modifying the planning process, planning and strategizing to include more future orientation, make your organization a learning one uh, where you are um, drawing on uh, lessons of evaluation and, and analysis that you performed and be ready to transform. It can be unnerving, right? Uh, many people feel change while humans are, by nature, very curious about the future. We look beyond. Look at the uh, all of the news lately about um, explorations into space and to Mars and beyond. So while our eyes, you know, gaze into the into the future and, and uh, into spaces we don't know, at the same time, when it comes home to where we uh, where we live and where we work, disruption to the organization's uh, plans or changes to them can can make us uneasy. So, uh, what can an organization do? Is is strive toward being uh, one that is, is learning and, and agile, that is uh, open to, to new ways of approaching things and to involve, involve staff, employees, and stakeholders in the process so they can go along with this journey of change and perhaps not be as shocked when an, um, a strategic foresight study suggests, say, to a business that the business they're in today may under one or more scenarios be gone in a decade. And so they might want to start changing their course and and, uh, what they're producing and what services they're offering.
0: Barb, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time today to sit down with us and, and explore some of the main ideas that you outlined in your book, Learning from Tomorrow, Using Strategic Foresight to Prepare for the Next Big Disruption. Please join us on April 14th at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada for further discussions with Bart around his book uh, in terms of a panel discussion. We really look forward to continuing this discussion, Bart, then. Thanks so much. And uh, we look forward to uh, speaking with you later.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I enjoyed the conversation and and look forward to the the panel discussion on uh, strategic foresight and futures.